Thank you. Thank you very much. We've had the Peewee sing for us today. We've had the Patch Group sing for us today. And I just have a simple question. How did they know what my sermon notes were? (laughs) You would be amazed, and you will see as we go through here this morning, how many things they said is on these notes that I have put together for us today in our study of Jude, verse number 4. I encourage you to join me there, please. Jude, verse 4. That is that tiny little book before you get to uh, Revelation. It seems to be one that uh, doesn't get much attention. We're giving our share of it. We're actually on the 13th week of studying this book together, and we're all the way down to verse 4. We've been in verse 4 for about five or six of those weeks, I know. But um, this is a very significant verse, and one that we need to understand if we're going to understand what Jude is talking about altogether. He was writing a book to a church that he loved dearly. He was writing to them because he wanted to talk about our common salvation, and that's a wonderful theme. And he says, but I can't get to that. I've got something else I need to address. And verse number four is what he's addressing. Just listen to it as I read. Follow along, please. And then we'll have a word of prayer. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, help us today as we open up your word and study from it. Do your work in our hearts. If there's anything here that's not in line with who you are or what your word has said, Make that evident to us in our own personal lives or as a church body. We certainly want to know what's true and live by what's true and do what's right. And I pray, Lord, that you help us today as we continue on this journey through a little book that is quite significant for our day and age. Help us with it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm... I've been presenting this to you for several, several weeks on hand, talking about the two primary issues that Jude addresses in this book. Verse number four talks about the deceit of grace, and it's kind of an interesting way to say it, isn't it? Because grace seems to be something we all love, we all desire, we all want grace, don't we? Okay, all right, I'm convinced of that now. Can somebody actually take that and use it in a bad way? That's what the text is saying, deceit of grace. I hear of that, and folks, I'm not telling you a story or anything. It's just reality. I hear of this constantly. Even last night, I got a note from a friend, and it was talking about the deceit of grace. And I'm thinking, is it really that prevalent in our land today, in our churches today? It is. It is. And I've been trying to bring that to the forefront only because we need to be protected from these things. 
The second thing that is an issue in verse number four is a denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that primarily today. The denial of the lordship of Christ. What is his name? Sounds like an easy question. The Gospels, there's four of them written about a person. What is his name? Jesus. That sounds easy, doesn't it? Look at the way the end of verse number four reads. Our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Look at verse number one. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It says that the end of verse number one, we're kept for Jesus Christ. We find that all the way through. Look at verse number 25, way at the very end of the book. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's kind of interesting. I had a student once write in their paper, and I I call this filler, because they're given five pages to write or something, and they can't quite fill it, so they find a way. You've never done that. They find a way to write a whole page on something that's not related to the text at all. And the whole page was on, Christ is not his last name. (laughs) I said, really? Jesus Christ. What is Christ? Messiah. That's the Old Testament. The Greek word is Christ for the Old Testament Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the chosen one. He's the one sent by by the Father to do his will. So Christ is his title. Savior, that's a title too, isn't it? But it's a a title in reference to what he has done. He has done what? Saved. Savior is the term given to one who saves. What is Lord then? Hmm. Well, if you ask in some contemporary circles, that word is optional now. Matter of fact, you probably shouldn't even use it. That is what Jude is warning about 2,000 years ago. And it's prevalent in our day and age today. Lord. There's arguments over that term, over that name, Lord. It's hard to believe, I know. We read it and say, but I've always said it this way. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he is my Lord. Is he yours? It's in our doctrinal statement, isn't it? That he is the Lord. We understand that. We recognize that. Who wouldn't? Well, these people in Jude 4 has come in and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny him. Deny him what? Well, that's what we're going to look at here today for a little while. I've got pages and pages of notes, and some of these are reviewed from last couple of weeks. And I'm not going to walk all the way through those again. You may say, Phew. all right. But uh, I, I keep them in front of me because I want to remember what we've been discussing and how we're going through this process. But when we got last week to the issue, the issue was from verse number 21, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. And that's a command. That's not something you just try if you're, if you're in the mood. That's not something you just kind of tack on as maybe a, a New Year's resolution. I'm going to try it for a month and see if it works. 
uh, or something like that. It is naturally and expectedly something to be obeyed. That's what a command is, isn't it? It sounds easy to me when I study it. Commands are meant to be obeyed, and I've said this before, but if you're not doing that, what are you? You're disobedient. The command was given in Luke, or Jude, verse 21. And there's several commands in this book, not very many compared to other books, but that is a command. And I'm not going to go through the nature of what it means or anything, just the fact that it is. And whether or not you understand Jesus Christ to be your Lord or not is how you're going to respond to that command. Because if He is your Lord, should you do what He tells you to do? It sounds easy. It sounds easy. Well, here's what we see in verse number 4. They deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, these are people, Jude said, who have crept into the church unnoticed. And it's interesting to me that they're still unnoticed when Jude is writing. So, haven't you noticed them there? They're there. They've been doing this in your midst. And that's what alarmed him more than anything else, was that this was going on in their fellowship. And he says, and they have taken the word Lord, and the Greek translation of that word is despot. They're treating him like somebody who is uh, maybe out of touch with their mind. That's the term we use for some crazy leader, right? That's taking over a whole country or trying to take over the whole world. We say, well, we, that's a despot. That's somebody who, who you don't want to have in charge of you because of the nature. That's the term that they are using for your Lord and my Lord. I don't like it when they apply that to him that way. Do you? But they bring in, as Peter says also, in Second Peter, he says, they bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Now, that word despot is what I'm talking about. And this is what they do. They deny him. Over and over, they deny him. They deny him. They deny him. His position, his place. As Lord. And last week when I was finishing up, I said this is the progression of where it usually goes. First, I do not claim this one as my master. And then, I do not recognize his mastery over me. And then, I do not recognize him to be a master. That is the next step, by the way. And finally, I believe him to be the wrong kind of master. He's a despot. That's the progression that usually follows. And it may say, well, they're pretty close together, Pastor. What do you mean? Well, I do not claim this one to be my master. Implying, maybe I've got somebody else. But he's not mine. He might be yours, but he's not mine. I don't claim him. I do not recognize his mastery over me. Oh, you could call him master all you want. I don't see it. I don't see I'm not going to claim him as mine because I do not recognize that. That's pretty impressive, isn't it, Sandy? I do not recognize that. You try that next time you go past the speed limit sign a lot faster than what it says, and the policeman pulls you over. 
And you say, I don't recognize that sign to be my sign. Try it. No, don't try it. I do not recognize him to be master over me. I do not recognize him to even be a master. Now, there's quite a statement. Think about that. He's not a master. What do you mean he's a master? He's not a master at all. Matter of fact, if you want to call him a master, I think he's the wrong kind of master. You see how they're slowly backing their way out of the room? Step by step, he's not mine. He's no. That, that's quite a picture to me. That's what I'm bringing before you this morning as a trend in our day and age. This whole concept of, of who is Jesus Christ. Is he Lord or is he not? Believe it or not, it shows in behavior. One who doesn't recognize him as their Lord, one who does not recognize his lordship over them, one who does not recognize that he is Lord at all. They believe him to be the wrong kind of Lord. Matter of fact, to them, these folks who have crept in, the word Lord becomes a fighting term. Bring it up and they're ready to argue about it. Personally, I don't know how we can argue about the whole thing. That Jesus Christ is Lord? I'm just going to lay that before you here this morning. You ready? Just so you know, in case you're wondering, is he really Lord or not? People wrangle with words all the time. I don't know if you've noticed that. Especially in theological circles. They could take one word and twist it 14 different ways. It all depends on their mood. It all depends on what they're trying to prove. It all depends on uh, who they want to associate with and who they don't want to associate with. I say often that it sometimes depends on whether or not they ate a lot of pizza before they start talking about it. But there's always wrangling with words. And when uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, he warned him about this. And this is amazing to me, how relevant these things are. He said in 2 Timothy 2.14, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless, and listen to this, and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Do you know who is hurt when folks in high theological circles start to argue about whether or not Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you know who it hurts? The hearers. It always works its way down to the pew. It always works its way down to the Christians. We're supposed to be growing in our understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're hearing from people who are supposed to know better than us that he's really not the right kind of Lord. You're saying, Pastor, you're making these up. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I don't name names when I come up here, and I never will in that sense. But the point is, it's there. It's there now. And the question mark is, why are they wrangling with a word like that? Well, Paul says it's useless, and it leads to the ruin of the hearers. So he says to Timothy, so instead, be diligent or study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, and avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it leads to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. How many want gangrene today? 
Nobody volunteered for that one. Good. Because we know it's destructive, don't we? This is our problem. This is what Paul's warned of. This is what Jude's warned of. This is what Peter's warned of. It's over and over in Scripture that we think, well, that's not necessary to worry about what's going on in scholastic circles or theological seminaries or in the books that are being written. It's not going to affect us. Oh, yes, it will. Yes, it will. That's why, as your pastor, I bring this to you, because this is what's going on. I want to remind you of two things today, and we're going to stress the first one and maybe get to the second one, but especially the first one. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's point number one, and I'm going to show you that from Scripture. The second one is that the blatant behavior of those who would deny his authority as Lord is all over the book of Jude. And maybe we'll get a piece of that today. But the biggest debate in the ministry of Christ and the gospel record, do you know this? If you read gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll find a debate went on there constantly whenever Jesus came in any proximity of a religious leader. And guess what the question was almost every single time? By what authority do you do these things? Who's your authority? How do you have authority? Let, let me give you a picture. Take a, a bookmark, set it right here. All right? And go at, with me to Matthew chapter number 9. Matthew chapter number 9. I'm going to start in verse number 1. Kind of gets you started where, where Matthew does here. This is one illustration, folks. We could go on to uh, lots of illustrations. But this is just one to show you. Matthew 9, starting in verse 1. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea, that Sea of Galilee, and came to his own city, that's Capernaum. And there they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. That's a poor guy that hasn't walked for a long time. All right? Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. You got the scene? Jesus is teaching, apparently, and suddenly this paralytic's put before him to have him heal. And what does he say? You're healed, get up, go home. No. Nope. He addressed something else. Your sins are forgiven. Oh, by the way, who has the right to forgive sins? God does. Do you know why God has the right to forgive sins? Because sin offends Him. It's an offense against God that we sin. Oh yeah, we can sin against one another. But ultimately, it's because we've sinned against God. And that's where it all started, and that's where it still goes. And until sin is taken out of the way, that's what it is. It's sin against God. Only God can forgive sins. What did Jesus just claim to be by forgiving this man's sins? Woo! You want to start something happening in the conversation? The Pharisees knew that. That hit them right in the spot. It says in the very next verse, verse 3, And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. In other words, he's claiming to be God. And they knew it. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? There's the test for the day. All right? Man laying there can't walk. You come in here and I say, pick which one you want to do right now. You either tell him his sins are forgiven, or you tell him, get up and walk. Which is easier? Oh, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Nobody could see whether or not sins are actually forgiven. You can't see those kind of things. But get up and walk, that's going to take a little work, isn't it? A guy who can't walk. But so that you know, verse 9 or 6 says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went. And everybody stood there with their mouth wide open. The notice the crowds in verse 8. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to man. Jump down to Matthew 21. That, like I said, that was an illustration of what happened often in the life of Christ. You can find that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They, Jesus did something, they questioned his authority, and he proved that he was sent by God. He had that authority. So, in Matthew 21, verse number 9, this is Palm Sunday. Did you know today was Palm Sunday? Had to put that in the sermon, didn't I? This is another episode. It's, in, it's during what we call Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry. Matthew 21, verse 9. The crowd going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Great day, right? And he entered into Jerusalem. All the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And he entered into the temple... And he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He just messed up the party. There was a time in the life of D.L. Moody after he had he'd been speaking on many campaigns and crowds. Ten thousands or more would come and hear D.L. Moody speak and and after one of the incidents he he was speaking at, one of the uh, conferences he was speaking at, he was coming out of the building on the staircase, and uh, a man approached him hostile in a, such a way and, and went at him, and D.L. Moody shoved him down the steps. And his, the man who worked with D.L. said, uh, you just ruined your ministry. <laughs> that was the end of that. Well, it wasn't. But it's rather interesting how we see a great day. Everything's going well, and then suddenly it just fell apart. A great day's going on, and Jesus walks into the temple. The crowds around him shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, and all those things. And he walks in, and he sees the money changers and the tables and all, and he starts throwing them out the door. Keep going. Verse twenty or 13, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But, verse 15, hear it? But, 
when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done, and the children were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry, indignant, it says. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you ever read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them, and he went out to the city of Bethany and spent the night there. And in the morning, verse 18 says, when he's returning to the city, he was hungry. He went to a lone fig tree by the road, came to it, found nothing on it except leaves only, and said to it, No longer shall there any be fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. How would you like that authority? Wow! The disciples looking at it, they were amazed, it says in verse 20. And how did that fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all these things you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. So he came into the temple. Things were still rough there, by the way. As he enters into the temple, who's waiting for him? The chief priests and the scribes. They had seen all their tables messed up. They had seen his answer with the children and with the healing of the lame and the blind. They had heard all that. They had built this up for three years already that they wanted to do away with Jesus. And they thought authority was still the issue. And so they, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of his people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? You and who gave you this authority? That was their common argument with him. I think it's interesting that it's still around. Does he have authority or does he not? Go with me to Matthew 28 for a minute. Matthew 28 and go to verse number 16. This is now after his resurrection. They crucified him. We found that even the tomb doesn't have authority over him. And we get into Matthew 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Has it or has it not? Yes. Was he asking them? No. He made a statement. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. So he told them what to do. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Sounds to me like suddenly there is a command following. Whether or not you believe he has authority is going to show in whether or not you go. He told them to go. Did they? Yes, they did. He told them to go. Jump with me to Acts chapter 2, just for a minute. Acts chapter number 2. 
Jesus has ascended at this point. The disciples were waiting in the room for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit came and uh, they started speaking languages that were not their own, right? And the people who were there at Pentecost, it was a holiday that everybody was supposed to attend, so the city was full. And they're looking at their, out there and they see 11 disciples out there and they're all speaking different languages. And they came to a quick assumption, wow, these guys are drunk. Never heard anything like that before. But they were speaking the languages of the people groups that were all in the community. Everyone was hearing the gospel that morning. As the disciples were sharing it in the languages these people needed to hear it in. So I'm going to jump down into the story a little ways to verse 14 and show you Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon. You're going to get Peter for a minute. Listen to this. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Notice who he's addressing. The men of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. Are there scribes and Pharisees in the crowd? Oh yes, they're all there. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, he says in verse 15. It is only the third hour of the day. And this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God said, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. And sun will be turned into darkness. The moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on the name of the Lord. Do you know that was written in the book of Joel? That was hundreds and hundreds of years before Peter ever brought it up. Men of Israel, listen to these words he says, verse 22. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. And they did. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart will was glad, and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow the Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He said, Pastor, where's all this going? Watch. Verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. What does that mean? He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about somebody else. Somebody else who is not going to stay in a grave. He says, he looked ahead 
Verse number, jump down to verse 31. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he would neither abandon, be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Do you know how he could say that to this whole group standing before? Jesus did not appear before all of them after he rose from the dead. But all they had to do was go and point out his grave. If they walked over to where he was buried, guess what they would have found? An empty tomb. Every single person in that crowd knew that that was true. God had raised him up again. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you have both seen and hear. For it was not David who descended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard that, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They had just crucified the Lord. And it hit him right here. Folks, there is a right response to the word Lord. It's not to deny him. It's not to say he's not mine. He's not mine. Our little singers this morning made it very clear. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, just so you know who we're talking about. And although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant. Having been made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The glory of God the Father. He isn't Lord because you said so, and he isn't Lord because I said so, he is Lord because God said so. He is Lord. He is Lord because He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is Lord. He is Lord. Every knee. Is that what it said? Is that what your text said? Is that, is that something true of us too? Do you have knees? Every knee will bow. Every tongue, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I would suggest to you this. Some will do that willingly and some won't. But they will all do it. For those who are choosing to deny his title as Lord, I think it's so preposterous that they have such an argument 
to speak of Jesus, and they put it all in the argument of salvation. Who is the only one who can save you, folks? Jesus Christ. If he's not Lord over salvation, then what is he? What is he? If he can't save us, who can? The point is real simple. He is the only one who can save you. He is the only one who died for you. Isn't that true? Yes. He's the only one who can bring you to God. We read it in Scripture. No man comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. And then it goes on to add that he's the mediator between God and man. Take Jesus' lordship out of the picture and you don't have anything. Do you understand that? Without Jesus as Lord, there's no power over sin. There's no power over death. There is no victory for you to claim. It's because of what he has done. Now, it's really hard to believe it, but Jude said, these folks have crept in, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They deny that. They're in the church, and they're unnoticed while they disavow Him, while they reject Him, while they contradict Him, while they refuse Him. They're in among the church, and no wonder Jude says, what are you doing? Mingling with this. This one who has saved you is being denied by those that you want in fellowshipping with you. It's such an alarming, alarming, alarming thing to see this. Second Peter 2.1 False prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you, among you, who were secretly introduced. Notice how they do it destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And how do you know? Well, when Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 3, he says, here's what you watch. Here's what you watch. Let us therefore, chapter 3, Philippians 3.15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude, and you, if you, any, and if In anything, you have a different attitude. God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern as you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and whose mind is set on earthly things. That's what Jude shows you throughout this book. That's a description of the false teacher. Exactly what you just heard. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. They glory in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. That's the blatant behavior of those who deny his authority. Guess who is their authority now? Themselves. Themselves. It's no wonder, folks, that this happens this way. Satan has started that all the way in Genesis chapter 3. You know it? He says, God's not really who you think he is. He's been hiding things from you. You can't trust him. Trust me instead. Trust my words. That's been going on for a long time. That's why that command was given to us.
to keep ourselves in the love of God. That's our protection place. Jesus asked one simple question one day, and I'm going to leave it right here on your own heart to think about. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? Think about that one for a while. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? There are some commands we have yet to discuss in this book. Technically four. Only four. But how many of them are we doing? I, I tell you this and I say it as simply as I can as I'm closing up right now. I know our time and all. If you read a command and you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord, you do it. If you read a command and do not see him as your Lord, guess what? You won't do it. Can we whittle it down that far? I'm just going to ask you today, who's your Lord today? Who is your Lord? I could give you more verses, but we don't have time. I just want you to start with this. Who is your Lord? Heavenly Father, this text is before us, and alarming as it is, that there are those who deny this. It's a sad thing, especially, that it's infiltrated to churches. It's in, it's in our schools today. It's in our theological circles today. It's an argument that's been going on a long time. And they're denying our Lord, His place as Lord. And Lord, that's not what we desire to do here. In our hearts, Lord, we understand. In our minds, we understand. We read from your word, and it says so often that you are Lord. May it be true of the way we live, too. May it be true of the way we respond to your word. Bring this to our attention today as we get more opportunity in the future to dig from this book. But this is important, and this is where we stand today. Is he our Lord, or is he not? As we grapple with that, thank you, Lord, that your word is so clear. We have no excuse. We stand here before you and acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. Because it's in his name we pray. Amen.